This episode is sponsored by Dutton Books, publisher of Timothy C. Weingart's riveting new book, The Mosquito, A Human History of Our Deadliest Predator. Hailed by NPR as hugely impressive and a major work, The Mosquito is available now wherever books are sold. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. In the August issue, Jacob Mikanowski describes his visit to the Great Kuru Thai, an event that promotes Hungary's supposed historical ties to a group of Hun-Turkic nations. This belief comes from the ideology of Turinism, a state-sponsored pseudo-history of Hungary's founding. As Mikanowski explains, this amorphous, often ludicrous idea posits that until the Hun was actually Hungarian, evidenced by the fact that both words start with Hun, and that the countries reached during antiquity stretch from modern-day Hungary to the Pacific Rim. I spoke with Mikanowski about the dual rise of Turinism and ultra-nationalist conservatism in Hungary, and just what pro-Turinist culture looks like. Why don't we just start with the obvious question, what is the real story of the foundation of Hungary, and what is this alternative history? That's a great question, because Hungary actually has an amazing kind of backstory, historically. One of the strangest in Europe. And then they've gone and created this completely kind of extra myth to go on top of that. So the received history is that this group of barbarians I don't know that there's a better word for it, called Magyars. That's still what Hungarians call themselves, the Magyars, show up in Europe around the year 900 AD, seemingly from nowhere, and they just go on a rampage. They loot, they pillage, they frighten everyone uh, in Europe. No one's sure where they come from. Best guess anyone has is somewhere in central Russia. And after 100 years of being basically this marauding land of Vikings, they settle down in what's called the Carpathian Basin, centered on what's today Hungary, and turn into another medieval country, something like France or Germany or Poland. Uh, they become Christian eventually. And there you go. Eventually you have the Kingdom of Hungary and then the province of Hungary and then the state of Hungary. And that's the short version of where Hungary comes from the received wisdom. So what is the alternative history? So this comes back to an issue with, with Hungarian history. The, there's a problem with being Hungarian. Is that you, and the problem is that you are all alone in Europe. Who are you as a Hungarian? Hungarian, the language, has essentially no close relatives, especially in Europe. And that's what people thought for a long time. It is not a Latin language not like French or Spanish. It's not Germanic, like German, Danish, Norwegian. It's not Slavic. And it's surrounded by Slavic countries. It's not like Polish or Slovak or Serbian. It's its own thing. And as far as anyone knew for hundreds of years, it was just totally alone. So who are your relatives? Who are the people you could call on for help? Eventually, kind of modern linguistic science discovered what the closest relatives are. And in Europe, they're Finnish and Estonian, very distantly related. And actually a couple tiny tribes in central Russia. 
that speak something related to Hungarian, an Ugric language, tiny, tiny tribes. That is really disappointing for your Hungarian nationalists if you were dreaming of this bigger, almost imperial destiny. So what they came up with is a Turinist idea, and it's, it's essentially that Hungarians aren't related to these little, to the Finns or these little northern peoples. They're actually Turkic. Their relatives are the Turks, all the Turkic peoples, so the Kazakhs, the Uzbeks, the Azeris, all the Central Asian peoples, and historically, all the great Central Asian empires, going from the Mongols through back to the Huns, and even earlier Parthians, Scythians. So it's, they invent this enormous heroic lineage that they're a part of, and this kind of geography in which Hungary becomes the westernmost Eastern people. It's a weird idea, but very current. And not just the fringe people. I, I was Hungarians are actually, you know, kind of washed ashore in Europe, but the real destiny is to kind of lead these Central Asian peoples into the future, to be the leader, uh, the number one Central Asian or Turkic or Eastern people instead of one more small Central European country. That's the kind of essence of the Turinic idea. And it's a lot of invented history, and, and, but also real history that's kind of fun in creative ways and elaborated on. So it's tough to get your footing sometimes. One of the things that you mention in the article is part of this rewriting of history is that Attila the Hun decided not to sack Rome, you know, sort of as a, as a I guess, a kind gesture towards uh, Christianity as opposed to what, you know, just losing a giant battle. But what you're talking about is fascinating because typically the way in which Europe has defined itself is by defining itself against the East. And that's kind of throwing this out the door. So can you talk more about why that embrace is so appealing, aside from the fact that, you know, you don't have to feel alone, that you maybe can feel like a, a leader of sorts? That's, that's, a, that's exactly right. Um, for Hungary, part of it is finding these other friends. And also, as an Eastern European country, you know, there's a, a sense of inferiority towards the West. And a way of overcoming that is saying, well, we're not, you know, the number 15 Western European country. We are the number one Eastern country. And historically, because they were in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, they were in this very bizarre situation in which they were a nation state kind of wrapped in an empire. And an Austrian empire, sort of the Hungarian state kind of inside it. This is what gave birth to this. It's like, okay, you guys can be Austrian, you can be German, you can be pan-German, you can be into Prussia and France and all that stuff. We have our own thing. We have our own Eastern destiny. And as the Western, most Eastern country, we are going to lead the Eastern peoples. We are our own separate pillar of individuality and, and, and destiny. This is something they, they, they stretched this out all the way to Japan. I was talking to a friend who, a uh, Hungarian speaker who was living in Japan and a Hungarian orchestra visited in the 80s, early 90s. And the introduction was, you know, we're so glad to be here to play music for you to, to, to the Japanese audience, since we're, of course, we're related. We're from the same tyrannic stock. It's a, and this is before this was politically kind of revived in Hungary in the 90s. Being a small country is hard. Uh, and Hungary is a small country. It's, it's about the size of Indiana, about the population of Michigan. It's not 
even in Central Europe, it's, it's one of the smaller states, much smaller than Romania and Poland. Being part of this big world and being a leader of it, even if it's all imaginary, I think it's good for self-esteem. It's good for, you know, historical imagination. And I think that's where it gets a lot of its contemporary fuel. In Korean, Han is this word for the feeling of being Korean, which is this untranslatable mixture of bitterness, unrest, a desire for revenge, but also a kind of endurance for being oppressed and for being a small nation, like the indignities of being a small nation. That's probably familiar to other small nations. Um, you talk about going to the Kurultai, which is this big festival that celebrates this alternative history and Turanism. And Turanism has been embraced by the right. And because the right is the dominant political party at the moment, there are a lot of resources going to support it. But there are also Turks, Azeris, and other non-Hungarians there who are there because they're kind of curious. But then there are other non-Hungarians who are attending because they're kind of pumped about it. So what is the appeal of this alternative history for them? I think it varies with the person. It was interesting to be there because it's this big event in the, in the absolute middle of Hungary, not close to anything. It's swarmed with people. It's just on a field. It's all free. It's all government subsidized. And you do have, you have kind of organized delegations like the Mongolian embassies and a bunch of people, the Azeri, Azerbaijani embassies, and a bunch of people. And you have just visitors, Turks, Uzbeks, Kazakhs, who, who show up, some, I think, out of curiosity. I think if you're a wealthy Kazakh who's vacationing in Hungary, it's very kind of surreal and, and interesting to go to a middle of a field and just see it full of yurts. It's full of, like, organized yurts, and people bring their own yurts to camp out at this thing. And to see your own, kind of your own, in parentheses, or in quotation marks, culture celebrated by this, you know, otherwise very Central European tort-eating coffee drinking people. And there are some there who are, you know, there are Turkish tourists. Turkish tourism is actually a little bit different, but there are, this goes back to the 20s and 30s, these racial right-wing movements, people who don't see Turkey's future as Muslim, they see a racial future of Turkey as leader of Turkic peoples. And that's still around there. There's a, there are real convinced Turkic tourists. There are Finnish tourists, even though it's complicated, but people who have this excitement or nostalgia over the great nomadic empires, or ultimately, you know, some kind of racial tribal politics, often the two go together. There's a guy who was wearing, you know, kind of, you know, tribal jewelry and, and leather pants and wants to do that nomadic warrior thing, but also has a vision of, of kind of Turkish pagan greatness. There are Bulgarians who believe in this stuff. So there are, so there are some, I think, curious and some who actually do, do strike like a deep political chord with them. So speaking to that, the appeal of the barbarian experience, even if it was true that the Hungarians were descended from the Huns, how much historical accuracy is there in something like the Great Kurultai? I mean, is, is there any investment in that? Or is it just sort of like, let's just make this as awesome and appealing as possible for so more people will buy into this? A, a little of both. It is, uh, I think they err on the side of awesomeness whenever possible. But with a, with a 
attempt to make it historically credible. They, um, one of kind of the main attractions, the great yurt of Attila, which is the greatest yurt in the world. Looks like a very large circus tent, but it's full of kind of scientific exhibits, actual stuff brought in from the local museum, Hunnic graves, graves of Huns, supposedly. So you have these sort of strange skulls and pieces of um, jewelry and and swords, and also like big murals showing Hunnish battles. You know, they look like the cover of a Megadeth album. I'm not sure how. With like these guys with battle wolves attacking Roman legions. And then a constant like circle of, of historical recreation, which turns into kind of dancing and then battling and then there's sword play and then the the parade of the tyrannic peoples and it keeps happening it's this kind of whirlwind i don't know if you've ever been a long time since i've been to disneyland but there's the way that you know you're at disneyland and every couple hours everyone freaks out because there's a parade and there's constant parade but whenever they do it it seems like the biggest thing and all the kids freak out at the coral tie Every 90 minutes, the tyrannic people, 27 tribes, like ride around the thing. And it's hundreds of horses and it's people in costumes. And you're not sure what you're looking at. But some of them are dressed in medieval armor. Some of them are dressed in 18th century costumes. Some of them are dressed as kind of the Hungarian equivalent of cowboy. Some of them are actual people from Mongolia and Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And they are, you know, riding around you in a circle. It creates a huge amount of dust. And there's music and there are loudspeakers. So it's, it's this kind of whirlwind with history incorporated in it and a lot of fantasy and a lot of, you know, design and spectacle uh, all kind of happening at once. Hmm. As you were describing this, it's hard not to laugh at some of it because it is it seems sort of absurd. But that's, I think, probably a, a larger tendency of the left to kind of like laugh at right wing aesthetics there's something kind of funny or weird about the idea of like the Bible museum where you get to see cavemen with dinosaurs and all this, this sort of thing. But this rewriting of history to sort of fit a political goal, it happens on the left too, like shows like Victoria, for example, where the queen of England is kind of woke and maybe she's not so bad. And like, she's kind of like a very active figure. And it's like, well, that's clearly not what happened. That's a fantasy that fits into what we like to fantasize about now. Can you talk about how the rise of Turinism has influenced other parts of the arts or literature? Um, you know, you, you describe a little bit of like the Turinist bands, but there's also been a lot of closing of independent newspapers in Hungary, as well as censorship of museums and theater performances. So what does the cultural landscape kind of look like? Really interesting question. There is, I mean, the way you describe Victoria, there is a way in which every politics in the present needs its own version of the past. And what's so interesting in Hungary, you know, on one level, it is so kitschy and so kind of odd, uh, this version of history that they're, they're promoting. The other, but the opposite of that is it's also an extremely effective kind of alternate right-wing universe, a national cultural universe that you can spend your whole life inside of. There was a speech given at the cruel tie by the, by the Speaker of Parliament and the equivalent of our um, Speaker of the House, you know, Hungary's Nancy Pelosi. And he's kind of the honorary chairman of this festival. He said, while this is all going on around him, that 
there's currently an ongoing attack against Hungary's uh, gender, family, religious, and national identity. All the forces of postmodernism of kind of, of are, are, are arrayed against Hungarian national identity. You know, a lot of this right-wing politics is about finding enemies and persecuting and then like fighting back against cultural enemies, social enemies, uh, international enemies. If you're constantly attacking this outside forces, you also have to have something that you're kind of in, in favor of. And this is kind of it in the Hungarian right wing. There's a nest of different things, but this is one of them. This kind of tour in this world, you know, where men are warriors and women are uh, sometimes warriors, but mostly, you know, back at home that has uh, authentic Hungarian religion, which is this completely invented paganism and lots of revived Hungarian paganism which are a couple warring factions, but true Hungarian religion, true Hungarian history, which was suppressed by the communists and then this continues to be suppressed by the academy. So you have to have alternate academies, alternate institutes that they're erecting to study the real Hungarian history. And even a Hungarian alphabet, uh, Hungarian script, nationalist love, it's Hungarian runes, and, and it's another marker of identity. And then there's a the whole music scene that I engage with this kind of nationalist music scene. Some of it is more pagan and medieval. Some of it's more contemporary. It draws on this, on these symbols and these themes. And you can really live in this world. You can listen to Hungarian music. You can eat off of Hungarian nationalist plates. You can go to, you can send your kids to, to nationalist uh, camps. The scout movement is very suffused with this stuff and very kind of prominent. And, um, all, you know, it's all identity has an element of you know, this imagined community aspect to all identities, but they are imagining, they are creating this alternative world that is a rebuke to a modern, secular, liberal, European, you know, other Hungary, that they're saying, no, this is, this is what it really means to be Hungarian. It's not Brussels, it's Mongolia, it's not secular humanism, it's paganism and Christianity and, um, you know, thousand-year-old battles. It's, it's this really alternate world that they've created and celebrate in this festival. And the government has embraced because I think they see the energy there and they see the enthusiasm and they will take anything that gives them support. So is this like Christian rap or is it something that people actually really like or is it hard to tell? I think it's something people really like, people really respond to. Uh, they don't always respond in a narrowly political way, but it's something people, this, this world is um, definitely garners enthusiasm. Just going around, I was in like small towns in Hungary, and you see people just in the shirts uh, of these bands of Carpathia and romantic violence. Uh, you see tattoos that draw on this kind of imagery, you see the, the runic alphabet. People are very into this. People, Attila the Hun t-shirts, there's a lot of interest. There's a lot of enthusiasm. It's kind of the opposite, I'd say maybe of Christian rap. It's not that it's, there's a political goal and this is manufactured to serve it. This is a kind of self-standing culture that politicians realize they should exploit. That there's an audience here that they need to kind of garner for themselves. You know, Viktor Orban is extremely I, I, for the stretch, talked to a bunch of people who, who knew him, especially as a younger man, extremely intelligent, 
extremely cynical, extremely ruthless politician. But he used to be a student activist. And I know people who knew him as a student activist. Going back to his student days, he prided himself on his extreme kind of professionalism as a politician. He's always looking for electoral advantage. He's always looking for how to build that 50% he needs to retain control. And he started, you know, in, in the last 10 years, especially in the last five years, he started to draw on this tyrannist imagery and language much more. And again, showing up at the World Turkic Congress and sending people to the World Nomadic Games because he knows there are votes there. He knows that there's a response there. He knows that there's interest in this version of Hungarian history. A lot of Hungarian politics is about the past, about the symbology of the past, about 1956 and the rebellion, about the communist past, about the 19th century, and about this. And I think some of the people around him really, really believe it. I think he uses it because he sees advantage that he sees a way to outflank his main rivals, which were until recently his main kind of opposition that he was actually worried about was from the right. The left is so broken and hungry that the problem, if you're Fidesz, if you're Orban, is how to consolidate your hold on the people to the right of you. They've done an excellent job of that. They've essentially kind of taken over the entire right and the far right and incorporated it all into themselves and driven the kind of old far right party. They've had to kind of vault over and become centrist. It's the pressure from the right politically that's driving this interest into how they grab all these like really nationalist people. People aren't just the Christian Democrats, people who don't just hate the left or the old socialist party, people who have these deep wellspring of like kind of extreme Hungarian nationalism. How do you get them on board? What had been a more, a, a right-wing party that flirted with the far right, how to get the whole far right in there. I think that's what's driving some of it. And why is the left so broken? Obviously, around the world, you can see it in Brazil. You can kind of see it here, parts of the Balkans. Um, people seem to be getting a little tired of neoliberalism. And there are these really extreme nationalist movements coming to the fore. But what were the conditions of the left losing all credibility and kind of crumbling, like you're describing? It was a combination of, of two things, a, a political scandal that involved essentially lying about the state of the, of the budget and, and a tape of a speech in which the formerly kind of leading left politician admitted that they were lying. This created a real firestorm, and they actually haven't recovered really from that. And the 2008 financial crisis, which hurt Hungary especially badly. They were hugely, they had borrowed a ton of money, and the credit crisis was especially acute in Hungary, uh, which fueled uh, the kind of, he just had actually been in power before, but it's kind of full takeover. Soon after the scandal and the financial crisis, the next big election, they won in a landslide will be strong, but they won it very convincingly and used that win to rewrite the laws uh, in a way that actually gerrymanders Hungary so that they can never be ousted again. They have legally stretching the limits of the law. They were in the Constitution, they were in the electoral law, they were written the judiciary. So that's extremely hard for any other party to take control. They've also consolidated their hold on the media, and now they're kind of going after and eliminating any opposing force in society to maintain that control. And meanwhile, the left is just, there's no figure that's seen as a leader. There's no party that's credible. The, the party that was in charge, that was 
implicated in that scandal in 2008 is kind of mortally hamstrung by it. There are smaller left movements, but they are very small. And it's an extremely steep slope they have to climb now without a media that will run anything they have to say, without even a cultural sphere that can really operate in freely with TV that's state-owned or only runs state-approved things. So people on the left, it's hard to see how they can challenge in open elections the, the kind of rule of fetus. And the, their fetus's own worries mostly center on kind of the right center. And really, they, they, Orban talks openly about ruling until 2030. He, he said that openly. He talks about, you know, needing a generation to shape Hungary. He really sees himself as the kind of president for life, I think. Uh, the people he really models himself are like Lee Kuan Yew, these kind of, you know, right-wing technocrats. Even as he'll, he'll pretend to be kind of a Christian Democrat one day, and then this turn a spiritual leader another, he sees himself as ruling, you know, until he gives up. People think he's, that's quite possible. Obviously, there's more than a little bit of irony in the fact that this alternative history is all about how Hungarians are nomadic, interethnic, and Orban is using it as a way to promote an anti-migrant agenda. So how does that fit into Turinism? Like what, I mean, aside from the fact that you do have to kind of bring in the far right, how does that, basically, how does that work? It does break your brain a little bit, right? So on one hand, they're very much, they're like, they're absolutely anti-immigrant and it's the, the same kind of right-wing rhetoric you man loves them. We're holding out this tide of people coming into Hungary, which actually they're not. Some people are moving through Hungary, but very few people actually want to settle in Hungary. But it's very anti-immigrant, very anti-Muslim. On the other hand, we are part of this trans-ethnic you know, melange of peoples and languages. Um, part of it is that they're just different styles of being right-wing. And part of it is that it's, tourism isn't about... It's not kind of Western multiculturalism. The the coral tie builds itself as the as the as the meeting place of the Hun Turkic nations, the tribal assembly of the Hun Turkic nations. And as the way in which that, that's it's a throwback to an entirely different kind of politics, entirely different kind of imagination of allied tribes, the Hungarian tribe extends the hand of friendship to the to the Cadillac tribal nation. This is the kind of alliance of fraternal peoples. Not and that doesn't imply open borders or or migration. It also helps that the, the other people on the side of this are countries that are very far away that have very little out migration. Azerbaijan, uh Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and also that have kind of the kind of rulers that Orban really likes, who do not care about human rights, who have a lot of cash on hand, oil money, uh, and are willing to invest it, you know, in any safe haven. So they're not, they're, these are countries that are rulers who are not going to criticize Hungarian elections or Hungarian press laws or Hungarian treatment of universities. You know, Uzbekistan or Azerbaijan could care less. They, they also need friends on the other side of this. This is the way the foreign policy makes sense. If the two strands, you know, it'd be interesting to see if there was a humanitarian crisis in Kazakhstan or Uzbekistan, and you had a lot of migrants who wanted asylum in Hungary. What, what would the two sides of this, 
which one would win out? That's when it would become kind of a question. But until then, you can kind of keep the two separate. You know, you can kind of be like, well, we're, we preserve our specifically Hungarian identity because we're almost like a tribal people. And, and anything, anyone outside dilutes that. And we can maintain our friendship with the other tribes. You know, tribe is a very strange word there, but that is the, the kind of imagination that's, that's at work. The American right has its own contradictions and things that kind of don't make sense. But nevertheless, it continues because there's been gerrymandering in this country. There's a lot of there's a lot of money going into continuing and courting the ultra alt-right. There seems to be kind of a rise of alternative histories worldwide. You know, it's like ancient aliens, flat earth. There are so many conspiracies theories now. Do you feel like those are also kind of related to the 2008 financial crisis? Or is it just people are kind of sick of the story they've already heard and they want something else? That's a big question. Um, And... uh... I'm not sure. I think, you know, I'm a, I'm a Polish background and I study Eastern European history. So I, I usually, any kind of big question, I go back to Eastern European examples. Czech Republic is interesting in this respect, where it's one of the most secular countries on earth, officially. It's kind of, you know, nominally Catholic, but really it's a place where church going, you know, any kind of survey, it's one of the least Christian places on earth. It's almost like a post-Christian country. Christianity has so little purchase on society. And so people are like, well, does this, this mean it's a secular country? People who study, you know, the sociology of religion will say, no, not at all. What's replaced kind of this kind of failing Christian church in, in, in the Czech Republic is a whole welter of new age movements, spiritual ideas, practices, magic, aliens, tarot, you know, the, the other types of spirituality. And that's something that's happening is that as established religions fail, what comes after, what comes next isn't enlightened secularism, isn't some kind of, you know, devotion to science. A lot of people who criticize religion will be like, well, the, the opposite is this kind of enlightenment rationality. No, what usually comes next is a bunch of weird stuff. As established religions kind of, their whole society fails, what replaces them is a just a Pandora's box of other stuff, of other kinds of spirituality. Everything from aliens to paganism to yoga to, to just a, a, a welter of people tailoring beliefs around their own identities. And a lot of that, because a lot of identity comes from your nationality, a lot of that gets this national dimension. So there's been a big revival of different kinds of paganism, kind of in quotes. These are all kind of invented religions, new religions in Eastern Europe, but a lot of other stuff too. I think that's part of the, the, the fuel of it. And I think because identity is often, you know, national and political, you get these spiritual systems or historic imaginaries or everything that reflects whatever people already feel themselves to be ethnically, tribally, or politically. Let's all kind of blend together. But that's, that's a, a little over my pay grade. Honestly. I'm a little, I'm in deep waters <laughs> talking about this. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. 
Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 